Hello. The 15th Thoroughly Good podcast was recorded in August 2018 at the British Youth Opera rehearsals in London's South Bank University. British Youth Opera, an opera training company for graduates and young professionals, was founded in 1987. It has an annual programme of productions, masterclasses and workshops for new opera talent. Amongst its alumni features Laura Attridge, who appeared on the Thoroughly Good podcast about Trinity Laban's production of Rope of Lucretia a few episodes back. This year, British Youth Opera stages two productions at the Peacock Theatre in Portugal Street, London, from the 1st of September, Stravinsky's Rake's Progress and Jeremy Sams's Enchanted Island. You'll hear from the Enchanted Island cast and production team talk about their experience of working with British Youth Opera later in this podcast. First is a conversation with Executive Director David Bolcom. Um, I only met you about ten minutes ago, but I do get the impression that you really love this work. Oh, yeah. Really? No, I do. I, I absolutely do. Uh, and I, and it is, I mean, I, it is such a privilege. And I, I know that tr- sounds like a trite thing to say, but it really is a privilege to be involved with these young singers and all the technicians and everybody else, because we're training right through the, through the, uh, the opera house, to be involved with them at this, uh, such an important stage of their careers and to be playing a part in helping them to launch their careers and, and move forward. And as with any company like this, just the whole rehearsal process is a joy to behold. It's fantastic seeing a, a group of disparate people come together at the start and end up this close-knit company putting on a, what is normally and promises to be this year, no exception, an absolutely wonderful production. Uh, my question will sound trite, but there's a reason for it, which is when you decided that you wanted to do this job, presumably you applied for it, yes, interviewed yeah. like most other people I would. I did, I did. Um, what... Mm. Uh, what attracted you? <laughs> Let's do the interview again. Yeah. What, what attracted you to the role in the first place? Well, I have to tell you a bit of history to that, which is that uh, in, the, in the 1980s, I, was, uh, I held a similar position at the National Youth Theatre. And in the late 80s, we had a member of our board who, who went by the name of Dennis Coe, who uh, he'd been a very active member of our board. And my last year at the National Youth Theatre, 1987, he and I spent a long time talking about a company that he wanted to create, and he was going to call it British Youth Opera. And we talked a long time about governance and how the experience of the National Youth Theatre could help him in setting up British Youth Opera. And uh, so that happened to be my my last year at National Youth Theatre, and it was his last year on the board because he went off to set this thing up called British Youth Opera. And 25, 26, 27 years later, the role of executive director was advertised. And it was like an extraordinary circle that was being completed in coming and applying for it and being fortunate enough to be, to be uh, g- given the role. And also to be in touch with Dennis again for the last couple of years of his life. He died. He wasn't, in, he wasn't in, directly involved with the company, but he was still around. So from a personal point of view, there was a huge sense of... Uh, um, ownership almost and I'd had a ringside seat at the creation of, of, of British Youth Opera but in the same way as I'd been committed to the National Youth Theatre because it was about training young actors uh, and also then I'd had a long time as being Chief Executive of the Chicken Shed Theatre Company which similarly is dealing with young people and training this, what, this, this brought together all of that but also my added love of opera which I'd never worked in before but have always had a passion for as a, as a spectator and, and uh, audience, audience member. So it ticked a whole load of boxes for me. What, were the, what was going on at that point in time then, in the late 80s, when uh, Dennis came up with the idea for a youth opera? I mean, th- it sounds as though there are a lot of youth training <coughs> organisations yeah. being set up. What, yeah. was, 
What was the background to all of that? Was well, there I a movement for it? Was there sort of a, a general momentum for, for setting that kind of thing up? I think, um, I, I think there was a recognition that opportunities for young people in the arts were probably diminishing in terms of education and you know, formal education. They, were, um, they, they weren't being very well represented in schools and in, and in uh, further education. Uh, you have to remember then as well that, it, that then there were very few um, there were very few degree courses in drama, for example. I was talking to somebody about this only the other day that now you know there are drama media courses in every university, every even this university we stand in. Every university seems to run a course. Then there were a handful of universities that ran drama courses and music courses. Uh, so, so the opportunities for really practical experience of really helping young people who had the talent and the and the, um, the, the, the motivation were quite thin on the ground. And uh, Dennis observed very clearly, by then, of course, we had the National Youth Theatre, which was well established. We had the National Youth Orchestra, which was well established. But Dennis noticed this big gap in, for, for young opera singers. And, of course, one of the things that we battled with over the years is that bit of um, youth in our title, because whereas the other youth organisations that I've just mentioned, they're very normally 14 to 21-year-olds, we're dealing with an older age group because they're young in their career, but because voices develop late, training is longer, etc., etc., uh, as you'll see when you talk to the company, most of them are in their early to mid-20s. So there is that slight difference, but nonetheless it's providing the same purpose, which is, you know, you've had a, dr- a great opportunity at college or whatever, now this is your chance to actually get a bit more practical training that will just drive you further into, uh, into, into forward into the profession. Some people would say that it's cyclical. The, the, the very things, well, no, not some people, I would say yeah. it's cyclical, in that the very things that prompted um, Dennis Coe to set up yeah. British Youth Opera mm. are the very things that are happening now. Mm. Am I being overly, overly simplistic? No, I, d- I don't think you are, because only yesterday we had a, I saw a piece saying that there were, there's been an 11% drop in the number of young people taking creative subjects at A-level. Uh, and that the, consequently the number of people applying for university places is dropping as well. Now, of course, that's in a, it, it's, it's in a context where there are many more places at university for people to be applying to, but nonetheless it is showing that where there has been an increase, there is now starting to be, to be a decline. And I think that um, uh, also that I, I was reading, for whatever reason, a couple of days ago, I was re- rereading a piece that Frank Cottrell Boyce wrote after the um, referendum. So he was talking about how the opening ceremony of the Olympics, which he'd helped create with Danny Boyle, how that had seemed to bring the country together. I'm not trying not to get political here, but how the referendum had had a different impact uh, within the space of, t- of a couple of years. And, uh, but his big point in his article was that culture, as a, a, a t- culture being taught, culture being a part of people's experience, should be something that one does for enjoyment as much as anything else. Yes, of course, some people will go into the into the professions, but it has to be something that stems from people doing it as something that they fundamentally enjoy. Now, if they're not actually getting the opportunity for those outlets in school, whether it's through the formal education of doing an A-level or the informal education of doing the school play or playing in a school orchestra or learning an instrument or whatever then suddenly that, that stream is being cut off and their opportunities are being cut off. And I think you're absolutely right. This is a very long-winded way of saying, yes, it is cyclical, and I think we find ourselves back where we were about 30 years ago. But does that also mean that it will change again? Is it going to be... Because it, it would be very easy to interpret all of the... Uh, forgive the drum... Uh, the, the pun, the, the drum banging... Mm. Uh, to think that it's over now, <laughs> you know, it's dying, it's over. Will it, 
will it will it claw its way back again, like I, like it did before? I'm, I'm I'm sure it will, and I think it is, and I think it's wrong to paint too negative a picture of of what's happening because there is there is some great stuff happening and some great organisations around. And I think, for example, that you know the National Youth Theatre is very dear to my heart because I was a member, then I was on the staff. And, and that's really in its pomp at the moment. I mean, what Paul Roseby has, has been achieving there in terms of widening the participation and widening the, uh, the influence and the impact is, has been very significant. And I think it's beholden upon all of us, all of us in the major youth arts organisations, to actually address that and, and, and do something about that. And I feel strongly that although all of us and there are so many national youth arts organisations. Uh, although we may never end up working together directly, I think we could lobby together so much better. I think we could have a much louder voice if we were. Um, that's something I'm sort of working on, that we can, that we can do that um, to, to, actually, uh, to actually bang those very drums even, even, even louder. How does British Youth Opera make a... That's very difficult to say without sounding drunk. <laughs> so I'm going to try again. How does British Youth Opera... You see, it is. It's very difficult. Uh, how does British Youth Opera make an impact now? Well, its impact, its, its most direct impact is upon the individuals who come and take part in, in what we're doing. So when you are in rehearsal and you see these people and you talk to these people, it makes a real impact on those individuals. Now, that's, this year, that's going to be about 120 individuals who will come through either as singers or as technicians or as orchestral players or come on our workshops. Um, but it, you asked this at a very interesting time because over the last 12 months, we've done a lot of work on actually... Um, of looking at how we talk about ourselves, looking at how we talk about our history, and, w and, and in doing so, looking at how other people view us. So not only have we been talking to uh, alumni, all of whom say what a great experience British Youth Theatre was, and they wouldn't be you know, the same person without, without it, but also we've talked to the colleges, the p profession, the agents, all of those people, and it's become, it's become very clear that we, we, are, we do have an impact on British opera, because... Uh, everybody is saying that without British Youth Opera and the way that we train people and the way they go into the profession, the landscape would be very different within British Opera. So we're talking, and it's always better to have somebody else blowing your own trumpet or banging your drum, as we've been saying, that, than trying to always boast about yourself. So the way we talk about ourselves now, we're able to actually use a lot of direct quotations from people, very influential people in the profession, who are saying what an important part British Youth Opera plays how it enriches British opera. Uh, I work as a coach, so I'm quite, quite easy with the challenge, which is you told me that it does do that, but you haven't told me how, how it does that. I'm sorry, but I need an answer. <laughs> Fine, no, you're very, and you're right to press for it. Well, I, th I think the, the big difference that British Youth Opera offers to these young participants that they don't get at college is they come here with a specific intention or specific uh, purpose of creating a production. We work in the same way, with the same uh, structure and the same timetable as an opera house works. So this group of, of singers who've been, who've been pulled together, they, they applied to join us back in February. They applied from all the conservatoires around the country, and we selected the best, and they came to us. When they came on a particular Monday morning in July, they walked into a rehearsal room where they may have known two or three other people in the room, but they won't have known many more than that. And suddenly they've had to come together and work as a company. Through college or the conservatoire, they've tended to be in a bit of a bubble. They've worked with the same peer group all the time. They've worked with the same coaches, the same directors, etc., etc. Here, suddenly, they're thrown into this environment where they've got to actually work with new and different people to a very tight schedule. They know that September the 1st, Enchanted Island opens. They've got to be ready for that. Every aspect of the production has to be ready. Uh, so, so they're getting an experience that is, as I say, much more... And they will work with a full orchestra. We'll work, we work with South Bank Symphonia. 
here. They'll work on a stage, a fully staged production, fully costumed, fully lit. Mark Jonathan has come from Glyndebourne to do the lighting. We have Stephen Unwin directing the Rake's Progress with all his experience at the Rose Theatre, English Theatre Company, English Touring Opera, uh, everything. So we have these really highly skilled professionals that they're working with. Um, and, and it's an environment and an experience that is as close, as I say, as they'll get to the professional opera house. We, our part of the bargain as well is that we then bring the agents, the casting directors, the representatives of all the major opera houses will come and see this in September, and they will know not only did we pick these from the best, we've also put them through this rigorous process so they know they're sort of tried and tested individuals and can therefore trust that if they think they're good performers that they could well fit into their company. So often we get that somebody will come into British Youth Opera, they'll have done all their training, they'll come to British Youth Opera, and then immediately be picked up to go off and do something in, in, the, in the real world of opera. And they're much better, a much more rounded, a much better prepared performer to, to accept that challenge than they might have been if they just stepped out of college. Uh, you're Arts Council funded, is that mm -hmm. right? We are. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you think, uh, mm. I'm getting you to perceive something, mm. but what do you think the Arts Council sees that makes him go, yep, okay, have this? Uh, well, I, I, I don't have to... I mean, I can be absolutely clear about that because the Arts Council is clear about it. They see that what I've just described is an invaluable asset to the world of opera in this country. They've absolute, they're very, very clear about that. Uh, and we've been a, 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 an NPO, a national portfolio organisation. We're in the second cycle of, of that now. Uh, so um, they, they do recognise that, and, that is, and that's very clear from the way they view uh, us. What, for, for those people who, who don't frequent the arts or perhaps don't uh, have an interest in the arts business, mm. what impact does that funding have? What does that allow you to do? The most important thing it does is that if I go and talk to a, another potential funder, the first question they will ask is, are you Arts Council funded? And if you say yes, then you move on. If you have to say no, then there's a big question of why aren't you Arts Council funded? If you're Arts Council funded, another funder sees that you've been through the hoops that the Arts Council put you through, that you have met their very, very rigorous standards in every aspect of the work that you do, which is everything from the performance element right through to the administrative and the, and the governance aspect of it as well. So it ticks a huge box. It's legitimacy, for, then. It's absolutely legitimacy and ticks huge boxes for other funders. Absolutely, yeah. And, and the thing I feel very, very, I feel very strongly about this, the Arts Council's grant to us is about 40,000. It's just under 10% of what we need every year. So it's not huge. However, it's not that big that if they take it away from us, they pull the rug from underneath us, as has happened to some of the companies. Which but would, it is would, giving us that legitimacy. Which would actually challenge an assumption that perhaps a lot of people hold about Arts Council funding, which is, which is what you would see yeah. sort of articulated in the mainstream press, yeah. which is if you've got Arts Council money, it's easy. You've got it easy. Uh, and actually, what you're saying is um, it's not going to be a disaster, but it's not like it's a... A blank check. No, it certainly isn't, and also the rigorous, uh, the rigorous reporting that we have to go through on a, on a monthly basis almost means that we our checks and balances are in place to make sure that we are doing it doing it properly, which is um, which again is good for other funders because they know that we're going through that process. David Bolcom, executive director of British Youth Opera, when rehearsal stopped for lunch. David introduced me to the director of Jeremy Sams's Enchanted Island and those members of the cast and crew joining us for the interview. In podcast terms, this is a massive lineup. So grab a notebook for the names, first of all. I'm Stuart Barker. 
Um, I'm directing the production. I'm James Atkinson and I'm playing Lysander. I'm Caroline Taylor and I'm playing Helena in the Enchanted Island. So my name is Stephanie Childress. I'm the assistant musical director on the Enchanted Island. I am Natalie Davis and I'm playing Hermia. So it's a wonderful um, creation of, uh, which, by Jeremy Sams, which is uh, um, inspired by The Tempest and Midsummer Night's Dream, and it takes the four lovers from Midsummer Night's Dream on the way to their honeymoon, uh, and they become shipwrecked on Prospero's Island. So it's a, it's a mixture of elements of the two stories, um, only elements. Some things have completely changed from Shakespeare. Um, but it's, it, it's a wonderfully constructed story. There's Some of it's very moving, a lot of it's very funny, very, very well put together. Um, everything cross-references, as we've found in rehearsal, everything absolutely makes sense. You know why people are doing things. It refers to something earlier on or, or, or later in the piece. Um, and the music is all from... It's all Baroque, a lot of Handel, uh, quite a bit of Vivaldi, uh, some Rameau, Purcell... Campra of various composers so Jeremy spent about a year I think just listening to all sorts of Baroque music and collected together all of these pieces most of which is not well known. There are a few things Zadok Priest um, uh, Endless Pleasure from um, Semele, um, Overture to Archina, a few things people will know but a lot of it is from uh, fairly obscure Handel oratorios or obscure Handel operas or Vivaldi operas, which so are not it's known not, at all. It's not him writing pastiche. It's no, not Jeremy it's, Sam's writing no, pastiche. It's, 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 all, it's all music from the Baroque period right. that, we, that we now have an opportunity to hear. Um, and because it's all been selected specially, it's, it's actually all really good stuff. What does British Youth Opera help you with? I think it provides young people with the opportunity to perform and rehearse as well at a level, at a professional level, which a lot of us may not otherwise have the opportunity to do. We're working with great people like Stuart and Nicholas, who's uh, conducting, uh, and also the opportunity to work alongside, uh, you know, really fabulous colleagues who've... You know, it's great working with these people who've got such amazing voices and talent. They're not saying anything. I don't... I don't <laughs> <laughs> Are you the only one who feels this? Yeah. You bribed him earlier yeah. to say that. <laughs> oh, this is really awkward. Um... So, so, but what impact does it have? So, from a um, from a, a cynical perspective, I sort of think, well, you are you are training to do this at college. What does British opera, uh, youth opera, provide you with that you're not getting in college? As something which uh, continues our work from the college, it's an opportunity to take the things which we're learning and put them into practice and consolidate them, uh, and just encourage. Um, good professional practices I think and the scale of time actually makes it makes that possible I think mm-hmm. because we're working for many weeks and I think when for a project in college or anything you wouldn't be working on a piece for such a long time so it's nice to kind of dig dig into a piece like this and just get to the bottom of it really yeah, polish it until it's perfect what have you learned about yourself on this particular course me in particular um, I think I've learned a lot from Nicholas Kramer, the conductor, and I think that's a lot of an assistant's part and a lot of the other assistants here, so the stage designers and the stage managers and things like that, and, and the assistant directors, we all learn from the people we're working with. But I think for me in particular, I've learned so much from the wonderful cast of singers because I've never worked with singers of this calibre. 
and they've been absolutely amazing and I think you learn how to work with you know singers who are on their way to and who are professionals so for me that's been hugely important but what have you learned I've learned some great music yeah some great music that I don't think would have graced the stage had Jeremy not sort of compiled them all together mm -hmm. um, and you just learn how to how to manage a rehearsal how to you know put a schedule together and things like that so a lot of things that I think as a young conductor you're not often trained to do and you've really sort of got to get on it and you know rehearse with with people yeah yeah I mean we had some advanced musical coaching with Nicholas um, to kind of I suppose introduce us to the way especially with baroque music you know there are different you can go down certain routes um, so it was really good to get a feel for how the music was going to be and then I think since we've been here Stuart has always encouraged us to start from a point of improvisation and see how we feel about what our character is doing so in a way I suppose you could say that the finished product will be a combination of what we feel about our characters as well as what the director feels about our characters. But ultimately, I feel that it's been collaborative kind of with ourselves and with our colleagues. And as a result, we sort of, we've got a more profound rapport, I think, with each other in our characters, if that makes sense. What was the, what was the reasoning behind that, that approach? That's the way I always tend to work because I always find that... Um, the the best uh, for me the best performances come when uh, all the performers put their own thoughts into them and um, everybody is creating in the room and that's when the exciting things happen that's when you discover um, and I also think that's a very good experience to take away from here as to how to create something in a room how to imagine how and you know for me the number one rule on, of opera really important really important number one rule what happens on stage creates the music that for me is absolutely at the core of everything and so if a performer is creating the music and finding the thoughts that actually create that what is in the score as though that performer is creating the score themselves on stage that's when exciting opera happens that surprises and that's something that I hadn't appreciated um, is that a commonly held stance when directing opera, the idea that uh, the performer creates the music? Int interesting question. I don't know because as a director I don't share a room with other directors. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm sorry, I know it's a really no, obvious no, it's, okay. it's, it's always the case in my rehearsal room, Right. but I don't know about other rehearsal rooms. And where do, where do you feel that idea comes from? Um, I'm not trying to get provenance. No, I'm but well, for, for me what opera is, is... A performer linking to a score that's the essence of opera mm. is an, is a performer's response to the music and the libretto that have been written um, and the the closer you can make that response the more real the more exciting the performance is and so it's it, there's a kind of a marvelous energy that happens between a performer's imagination which I mentioned earlier and the imagination and what is written in the score and when those when something happens, it's incredibly exciting. When uh, do you see that in rehearsals? Yeah, absolutely. And what do you? I'm sorry to ask this, mm. but I'm here and I've got the microphone, so I will. Uh, but when that happens, what is it that you see? If you can describe it, what is it that you see that, that makes you go? You it's working see, there. You see something that is believable and something that works together. So when the stage and the music are absolutely supporting one another, 
and are, are working as a team, working as one, that is exciting opera. That's when one just feels that it is right and it works um, and one finds solutions that are just... Um, just seem perfect for for this particular music, and I say it should always be that the um, the composer has never lived. The composer, nothing has been written before. These performers are on the stage, and the music is pouring out of them. They are creating it at that moment. That's that's the aim. So that's why I work that way because that's the the best way of sort of harnessing that energy. Do you experience that in rehearsals? Very much. What so. is that experience like? It's really exciting. Um, it's like like energy coming out yeah. of you. And like, it's like you're a different person. Like you're not yourself. You're completely different. Your your character telling that story is is, is in your head, and you're, like you're seeing things in front of you that like maybe the, the audience can't can't see what you're seeing in your imagination. But you're trying to take take them with you. I think it's the performer's responsibility is to like transport the audience on on the journey with you. Uh, I have to say, he- hearing you talk about it, I, I totally get what you mean. I imagine that it must be exhausting when you're in that state. I mean, I think, as you say about, it does feel like it's just energy. And I think as a result of that, when you're really inhabiting things and when you're truly captivated and losing yourself in the actual, in the, in the opera, in the, in the libretto and in the character... Yeah, I think you come out the other end feeling satisfied but okay. tired. Okay. I think it's a satisfying much, much exhaustion. Much nicer word than exhaustion. Satisfying <laughs> exhaustion, yeah. Um, is it also slightly addictive? Does it have an addictive yeah. quality to it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Once, you, once you've experienced being open and willing to make a bit of a fool out of yourself and... Um, <laughs> Just well, now laughing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you see the show, you'll know why. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, that sort of creative energy is really exhilarating, uh, and it is like you said, it's very addictive. Once you start, that you just want to do more and more of it. Uh, yeah. And I exciting. wonder, I wonder then whether, uh, and I could be trying, I could be reading far too much into it, but I wonder whether there is an element of trying to. Um, reach for that at the audition stage so you know when you're auditioning is there an element of you that's sort of a part of you thinking I want that I want that because I want to experience definitely yeah you really want it whenever you go into an audition you you really want it yeah and it's also the thing that is the thing which you take into auditions which gets you results from auditions Mm -hmm. if you can go into an audition with that openness already Mm. the people on the panel can see that Um, absolutely and how long are they I'm not going to go on about auditions anymore, but 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 just as a, how long do you have in an audition? Ten, ten minutes. Oh. Yeah, ten to fifteen minutes. Not yeah. long. Two no. two arias yeah. usually yeah. is all you get in an audition. It's nothing. Yeah. Sometimes a little bit of chit chat. Sometimes, but not always. But presumably you don't want there to be too much chit chat. Otherwise, there's less time for the audition. I uh, less time for singing. It's usually after after you've sung. I found. What made you? Um, what made you want to? come into this not BYO I understand why you're doing BYO but actually why do you want to perform because it looks like a hell of a lot of work to me mm. and no guarantee of income and I've just started as a, sorry <laughs> am I frightening you yeah. <laughs> yeah. am I saying all the wrong things no not at all do you, do you see what I mean yeah. I'm, I'd like to I'd like to access the things that motivated you and then I'd like to cover what your parents said <laughs> well I think it's having a 
it's going to sound a bit naff. I think it's just dreaming of the stage for me. Right. It's just, it's something to do with when you get that rush of fully inhabiting and fully being in that moment of the whole thing and the energies and the whole bit, nothing compares to it. And I suppose you just think, well, what else could I do that makes me feel this way and there's nothing else? And I think that that for me is a big part of it. Um, certainly, uh, I consider myself an investment to my <laughs> mum. We talk about my return, <laughs> usually in a jokey context. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing about it in a way that says that maybe, maybe it's no. not a joke. Um, well, I think, no, but seriously, I mean, we are taking a gamble. There's no, there are no guarantees. And I think that's, you have to really want it or else you won't, unless you really want it, you won't get jobs. And, and I think you have to continually strive to be the best that you can be and and be ready to receive as a performer. I think that's the other thing, always be open to things and that that's how you advance I think and that's how you would get more roles you would get work um, but you have to really want it because mm. it's there's no guarantee of money I am um, I'm aware that I have uh, a, a sort of similar experience in that I went freelance last July uh, and it was some at the point of going freelance I realized that this was something that I'd wanted to do for years but had never had the balls to do it and since doing it, I've noticed that there are periods of time where I just have to go, you can't plan for anything. You can't, you can't hope, or do, I mean, you kind of hope, but you, you can't really hope for anything. You've got to just take the leap and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, then something will probably be all right. I mean, it, does that sound, is that familiar? I mean, you're nodding in a way that says that that's familiar to you. Yes, I think, you know, with any conductor, you're still sort of, it's like a singer looking sort of for the next gig and things like that but I think when you do get it that's the most that can be the most rewarding thing and then when you start working on something and really sort of digging your teeth into it that's for me that's almost as rewarding as a performance it's the whole process behind it um, but yeah you never know you've got to keep putting yourself out there and you know networking and doing all these things and that can be hard it doesn't come naturally to some people so. uh, who inspired you to perform Let's start, actually, let's, I mean, I know you're not performing, Stuart, but who inspired you to direct? Gosh, um, who inspired me to direct? I mean, the first opera I ever saw was Rigoletto at ENO in 1982, which was directed by Jonathan Miller. So I suppose that, that I mean, that was a, an, a major moment in my life because, you know, I, I just suddenly found something that, I found so hugely exciting. I've never forgotten that moment of the curtain going up. So I suppose in my, in my early days, that was a major inspiration. Um, and then as, as time's gone on, many other people and many other forms of theatre have kind of inspired me in different ways. Uh, what was the no turning back point for you? What was the Am I making you uncomfortable? No, it's, it's an interesting <laughs> question. I'd about everybody else. I don't know if there isn't. There was a no turning. I, supp I suppose when I first directed something at university, which was um, I directed a production of The Merry Widow, and I mean it was it was a terrible production, but because I, I was learning how to do stuff, I think I, I realised uh, about a day before we opened that I should probably find myself a stage manager. So I did. I had no idea what I was doing. Okay. Um, but <laughs> well, you were just <laughs> ambitious. I was like, yeah, absolutely. Ambitious. I was kind of kind of find it, finding out and. I think that was the point, and I just fell in love with it, and I've just stayed with it ever since. And I just love helping to create 
performances on stage, you know, in a similar way to the way I love watching performances on stage. Uh, I am struck actually by spending more time producing a podcast about uh, people who are performers that I don't know of any many walks of life where people will extol the virtues of the work that they're doing in such a sort of an infectious way. It's quite a rare thing, the performing arts, um, which is a, a joyous thing to be in amongst. So what, who, inspi- who or what inspired you to do what you're doing? Uh, that, there's probably two answers to that. The Great. first of which is that my family are all singers, um, uh, my parents, uh, they're probably the people I look up to most. And You were press-ganged then? Yeah, pretty much. Um, no, <laughs> they, they, they no were, option. No, I think they were quite keen for me to do anything else. Oh, but, right, okay, right. But until I decided that I did, and then they were incredibly supportive. But the, the point at which I decided this is for me was watching a... My parents bought a DVD of The Ring Cycle from uh, 91, um, Baron Boim at, at, the, uh, at Bayreuth. And watching John Tomlinson singing Votan, and I just thought, Christ, that's what I want to do. How old were you when you saw that? Uh, 17, I think. Wow, you came yeah. to Wagner early. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, okay, wow. <laughs> I, I, I hold, if I had a hat, I'd take my hat off. Um, and who inspired you? I was just we're thinking gonna, about that, actually. No, I know. Everybody's going to have to answer No, I know. I was just thinking, well, one of the earliest memories I've ha- I have of seeing a performance was seeing The Boyfriend... Um, with my grandma and my mum at Brockenhurst College. I think it was all kind of students. And I was about six or seven. And I just found that magical. And obviously, it's, you know, it's just Brockenhurst. It's not the West End. But it was wonderful. And, and I think from then on, I kind of got interested in performance. And then it wasn't actually until my university degree, because I didn't do a conservatory, I just did modern languages, um, and I started oh, hence the ling- linguists, etymology, yes. semaphore. Yeah. There we are. So I've right. said all the trigger words now. <laughs> yeah. You should get really okay. excited. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> look in my face. It's excitable. Um, yeah, I started to perform a lot more. And, uh, and obviously that was wonderful. But I'm going to be really cringy. And I think it was when a few, about seven or eight years ago, I was sat in Phantom of the Opera and the curtain goes, the chandelier goes up after, um, some, what is it, what is the line? let's have a little illumination. And then the whole thing kicks off. And I was just sat in my seat, kind of swaying with the joy of everything that was going on. And I think it's, um, it, was, it was a kind of theater. a mix of things. The theatre, something it. about okay. it. It's just, it's just magical. When it? I hear you all talking about theatre, I'm um, reminded of the smells that I s- mm. that I get in the auditorium, which I always think is either everybody else's aftershave or perfume all mm. around me, or it's the smell of the makeup because mm-hmm. I wonder whether there's something about a, a, a stage door being open and there being a draft into the auditorium. I may be making mm-hmm. all of this up. I'm, I, you're smiling in a, either a knowing or a or a <laughs> or a terrified way. Um, and how about the last two? Who inspired you? What inspired you? Gosh, what is what? Well, firstly, definitely Freddie Mercury for some reason because my parents aren't classical musicians at all so they introduced me to a lot of rock music um but I was originally a violinist and I never wanted to be involved in music at all but then I saw a production of De Rosencavalier the ENO when I was 13 with Edward Garner conducting and I think those first few chords and then I realized that yeah why would I want to do anything else you know and there was something about the theater actually that drew me in not just symphonic music and you know things without singers I think it was really 
that aspect of working in a theatre which drew me to conducting? In opera, you've all talked about opera and, and the theatrical aspects of performance where it's very visual, um, there's a lot of other senses being triggered. I would say that it feels like you're immersed in the whole world from the minute, even the minute that you sit down, even before the curtain goes up, you've already got that anticipation and I feel that that is essentially the difference between sitting at home um, and listening on the radio versus actually going to see a live performance of an opera. You're just, you're just filled with just all these things. And I mean, even if you don't like it, that is still in itself, that's an experience. And sometimes those are the most rewarding experiences because you think, oh, I really didn't like that. And it made me feel something that I wasn't expecting to feel. As performers, do you fear that people won't come to opera in the future? Because if you talk to a classical music musician or a classical music marketer, they go, oh, no, we haven't got to replenish, replenish your audience. Uh, but I don't really hear people in opera talk about that. Not, not really. I think people have been saying that for decades. And yeah. I, yeah. It's yeah. always operas die. Every, every century. Yeah. Okay, so they are saying yeah. Every century yeah. someone has announced that opera is dying, and it never has. I think it's just the opera house's jobs to keep things, I wouldn't say up to date, but just have a good variety. I think. I'm reminded actually, your parents are uh, fans of rock music, and yes. yet you went to go, to, you went to Eno when you were 13 years old. Yes. I, I need some. How did that happen? If your parents didn't take you, who took you? Well, they they took me because you know they appreciated that I liked classical music, and I think when I started the violin, I introduced them to a world that they weren't aware of. I went, I took them to see. Um, the countertenor for the first time and when he opened his mouth they just couldn't believe they thought it was a woman singing you know so who introduced you to classical music if it wasn't them we just went to a um, Nigel Kennedy concert in France and he has a very sort of rock setup for <laughs> his four seasons back then anyways um, yeah. was it that album it was there his sort of um, seminal album of yes the, yeah. absolutely and I, we went to see and there's a great actually the videotaped recording of um, the performance at Carcassonne in France and we went to see that and I loved it uh, you are the last remaining person who I haven't asked I can't let you go without <laughs> asking you because that would just be wrong uh, who, in, who or what inspired you it's, it's quite hard to... We've to had all this time to, to pick. <laughs> so you can't um, stop by saying it's really hard. Oh. <laughs> what have you been doing? Um, <laughs> I, I had music lessons from a very young age, not singing lessons, um, because I had uh, some friends at primary school and their parents are uh, musicians of an extraordinary calibre. One's a clarinetist and um, one plays the oboe. And I guess being in their house and and surrounded by music and I would go and sit at their piano and make them sort of teach me the piano when I was four five mm. and then I um, had flute lessons and I really wanted to be a flautist and then I started having singing lessons it wasn't for me I still really wanted to play the flute and then I remember I went to see I think I may be 16 I went to see Salome at the opera house and mm. I the it's wow. dark and yes. <laughs> it was um, and I just couldn't couldn't believe like I'd never who, cho who chose to go and see that was that your it was uh, actually a music teacher from okay. secondary school <laughs> yeah I don't I don't think she was expecting <laughs> quite <laughs> quite expecting that I think She's she, she got a, quite a cheap deal on the tickets and the, you know there was nudity and she'd taken us all but I was amazing oh, <laughs> yeah there was there were a, there were a few of us and I, I just remember like watching it on stage and us just the sounds coming out of the, these people and just like I just felt transported and I just knew then I was like no I, I want to do that and I, I haven't looked back and the flute is neglected now. Uh, what advice would you give to people who are 
15 years younger. I realise that's very specific, but people who are on the cusp of thinking about whether they'd like to do what you're doing now. 15 years younger or 15 years old? They're only about seven years old then. That wasn't my way of trying to find out how old. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Although obviously, I have very my age to you. as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Whatever. Whatever the. Uh, however much younger they are, what I'm interested in knowing what you would say to them now to encourage them. Uh, immerse yourself in it. Listen to. Uh, the singer, the great singers of the past, because there is such an enormous wealth of knowledge to be gained from there. Uh, listen to Crelly because he's the best. Um, and sorry, uh, and be willing to make a fool of yourself. Don't be worried about embarrassing yourself because that's when the audience is most engaged in what you're doing. When you embarrass yourself. Yeah. No, no, it's true. Well, when, yeah. when you're when you're willing to take the risk right. yeah. of embarrassing yourself. I think you yourself. have to be fearless, completely fearless, because it's so ex- exposing being on stage, like sometimes completely on your own and just, yeah, it's, it can be quite scary and, but you have to be fearless and you have to take a risk and jump into it and you should try and lose your inhibitions. So yeah. we've had immerse yourself, be fearless. I need two other pieces of advice. I'd say listen to and just immerse, well, immerse yourself in obviously in opera, but also in everything else, mm. all other kind of genres of music as well. Go to concerts, go to, you know, the, the, just go and look at things. Go and, and um, I think don't, don't think that because you want to become a, a classical opera singer, you can only listen to opera. In fact, that's, that I would say that's a mistake. I think you can learn so much from listening to rock, from listening to jazz, from listening to everything. There's so much to be folk. I mean, there's so much to be learned. Um, yeah, okay. I think that's for me. And one last piece of advice. I mean, just following on from what Caroline just said, I think, especially for performers, when you're trying to recreate the world on a stage or even recreate you know emotions in an orchestra pit you've got to know what that world is like and you have to assimilate you know all these experiences around you i think definitely don't limit yourself to one jar and um and get good at music theory that'll always (laughs) help that'll help yeah it's tiring at first but that will really help i loved music theory I, I did. Oh, because it's because it's all rules. It's rules, and there's a right and a wrong answer, and that's how life is. Um, Thanks to everyone who spared their lunch break to participate in this podcast. It's always a joy to speak to performers and producers. Not only were British Youth Opera generous and accommodating with their time. They were also eagle-eyed, retrieving the recording equipment I'd used to record the podcast, uh, the same equipment I'd left behind in the rehearsal room when I left London's Southbank University. Performances of The Enchanted Island are on Saturday the 1st, Wednesday the 5th and Friday the 7th of September at 7pm at the Peacock Theatre on Portugal Street. The production of The Rake's Progress is on Tuesday the 4th, Thursday the 6th and Saturday the 8th of September, also at the Peacock Theatre. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Podcast. Please rate, like and share the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. You can support its ongoing development by visiting the Thoroughly Good blog at thoroughlygood.me and clicking on the donate button. All donations welcome and very much appreciated. If you'd like to get in touch, tweet me at Thoroughly Good, uh, like the Thoroughly Good page on Facebook or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>